Joel, we just celebrated our third year of the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Man, time flies and you're having fun. Yeah. We're entering year four. I can't even believe it that we've been doing the podcast that long every week, pretty religiously, and bringing our uh, faithful listeners the information they want to hear in regards to wind energy. It, it, it's a lot of work. Uh, Joel, you, you've seen me deep dive into the, the news effort that goes on every week. We're trying to bring everybody the, the latest and greatest and uh, the news you probably haven't seen in regards to wind energy, not only in the United States, but a, across the world. And this week is no exception. Uh, to start off this week, we have a, a couple of legal items. Vineyard Wind is involved in four different lawsuits at the moment that are dealing with uh, fisheries and uh, landowners, and those are coming to a close here shortly, we hope. And then GE's and Siemens Gamesa have finally settled their patent dispute, and that's good news for both sides. And then Joel and I take a, a, a deep dive into the Department of Energy and their new U.S. offshore wind strategy and what that means uh, for the wind industry over the next couple of years. And sticking with uh, the talk on the U.S. trying to sh put forth a strategy with offshore wind, we also chat about RWE and BP uh, both launching offshore wind innovation challenges. So trying to figure out uh, what's out there in the market to reduce the uh, levelized cost of energy and then um, be a little bit easier on the environment at the same time, some circularity and ESG things. Uh, after we chat about that, we're going to talk about Siemens Gamesa landing a 95 wind turbine order from Scottish Power for the East Anglia 3 project of their big flagship offshore turbine. Um, and then uh, as, as that is going on in other parts of the world, we're going to jump to Sweden. Sweden talking about the percentages of wind projects that they've actually turned down uh, at the governmental level. Uh, and you'll be, I think, quite surprised to hear how high those numbers are. Uh, and then, of course, the Rattlesnake Creek Wind Farm is our Wind Farm of the Week over there in Nebraska. We're going to do a little bit of chatting through that one. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, Joel, where would the week be if we didn't have a couple of nice lawsuits to talk about in wind energy? And they seem to be focused uh, around Massachusetts at the, at the moment. There are four cases uh, that are in federal environmental court related to vineyard wind. And that project is expected to really get rolling this summer and be up and running, I think, by the end of 2023 or early 24. Well, a federal judge heard arguments brought by two uh, landowners in two separate cases, and then there's two other suits brought by fishing groups, um, but those cases have been consolidated. So they're running all these cases through one judge in Boston to handle them and to, to get some clarity on what the ground rules are. And the, 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 the main uh, thrust of these lawsuits have to do with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management saying that the BOEM didn't conduct a thorough environmental review when it approved the project. And if once they didn't, if that did not occur, then subsequently uh, everything from that point is relatively null and void. That's, that's where the efforts are pushing. The 
the right whale is become uh, a, a center point of these cases because of the recent deaths of the right whale and a number of other whales along the East Coast. This is a big deal. And I I think the thought was early on, Joel, that, that Vineyard Wind would have these cases dismissed, that they weren't worth hearing. A lot of them had to do with standing. But now they they percolated up to, I think, final judgment will happen here shortly. If Vineyard Wind gets put on hold, that's a that's a big, big uh, stopping point for offshore wind in the United States. The, one of the things that's kind of odd here is that the, all these cases are centered around Vineyard Wind. Now, I know they the, where Vineyard Wind is geographically, it's very much in the public eye, so it makes sense. But there's a there's there's a dozen other wind farms up and down the East Coast that are in the same pro- permitting process or you know in that planning stage as Vineyard Wind. So that that's kind of odd to me. The other one that rings a little odd to me here is in within the United States judicial system that there's one judge trying all of these. Now I can understand that you want to have one person that maybe you know maybe they have all the more information. The more information they're fed about offshore wind, the more they have, but then you put all of the decision-making into one person's pocket, right off of one person's desk is the signature that makes all this stuff happen. And that's usually not the case when you start trying separate things, right? So I would imagine most of these suits are being brought in the, if they're out of Boston, the state of Massachusetts, in that whatever district court it is. Um, to me, this seems to be such an important uh precipice of offshore wind in the U.S., this should almost be a, a Supreme Court thing, but I know it has to go through stages to get there. I, I don't I don't know if they're going to appeal it. I wonder if these groups will appeal. Somebody's going to lose and either it's going to be Vineyard Wind or the uh, the fisheries. Um, does it go to the Supreme Court? It may. If you appeal it, does it put a hard stop? It could. I mean, they could get a stay. Yeah, get a stay of injunction or whatever. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I mean, it's already been delayed and pushed hard enough. It's, isn't Vineyard Wind One is the same exact wind farm that GE and Siemens have the fight ongoing about the the patent issues as well, right? And I'd hate to be I would hate to be an executive on that on that thing. That just bad news every day. <laughs> the project is stopped again. Project is stopped again. Um, but I mean, so you and I have personally investigated some of the all the material that we can find online or or out there in general about the the right whale thing and there's been a few releases by some of the federal government agencies that have said you know the wind is not the the cause of the right whale deaths so we're you know pointing them at uh, more of like overspeeding vessels and contact with vessels and stuff like that but not wind vessels in particular so you'd think that these things should go through pretty pretty quickly um, the fishing group thing is a bit tougher as far as a lawsuit to pick apart because you I can see where the fishermen are a little bit up in arms about it, um, where you need a longer term study to see the impact on the fishery itself, whether it's lobster fishing or cod fishing or, or, or whatever. Um, but if you can point to other studies, um, the best fishing in the Gulf of Mexico near shore Texas is right next to the, all the platforms. So it, it might be it might be better off for the populations. Yeah, the the whale issue is interesting because uh, it was last October, November, they had a, a big offshore wind meeting at Northeastern University. And one of the, the the presentations was about the right whales and how they were going to pass through that area. 
and it may need to be a more of a buffer than was originally laid out by Bohm uh, to make sure there's no interference between the ships working offshore to install the wind turbines and the whale is going to be running along that coastline. And my first thought was like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're going to be putting some of these turbines in and now the experts are saying they need a larger buffer. If that gets to a courtroom, that's a pretty good argument to say we need to put everything on hold until the experts agree on what and where this wind farm should be and how they should handle uh, the ship traffic through that whale corridor. I, I saw that as a problem. That was, well, that was six months ago now. And here we are in front of a judge. I That could go either way. I think the the right whale issue could go either way. Long time. Because it's an endangered species. Yeah. And the endangered species thing kind of, that that's a, that's a big difference than the, the fisheries case. So is the, I guess the end goal, and I haven't read these cases, are is the end goal, we want to stop offshore wind or is the end goal for the fisheries, we want, we want some money in our pockets based on what you might remove from them. Um, or, you know, is it with the right whale where it's, that would be basically, we want to stop to the extra vessel traffic and the installation of these wind turbines. Yes. There's, there's a fight looming. Um, and like we say, usually we're, we're going to keep an eye on it, but, um, I think there's a little bit more reading to do here to see exactly where these things are going. Yeah. I'm going to dig into a little more this coming week and we'll talk about it again next week and to see if there's been any motions from the judge or to, to see how the, the trial is playing out and, Siemens Gamesa and GE are also uh, trying to settle their patent dispute. And remember, not that long ago, Siemens Gamesa won uh, their patent quarrel with GE. And it became a big pain point for offshore wind because it had to do with the uh, Heliad X wind turbines and uh, the way a bearing was installed in this wind turbine that Siemens Gamesa said that they had designed it and had patent rights to it. And evidently, a, a U.S. judge agreed with that. Uh, so GE and Siemens Gamesa, which I think is now Siemens Energy, now that they've been reacquired by C the parent Siemens, agreed to a settlement to end their European and U.S. patent disputes. So remember, they were suing each other in United Kingdom court, I think also in France, and then obviously the United States. So they're just trying to stop all the lawsuits from one another, which is to the benefit of both companies, I think. Uh, there were no... <laughs> no details of the settlement. Everything is confidential, so we're not sure exactly what's going to happen. But remember, about a month ago, a U.S. judge uh, doubled the royalty payments. GE was supposed to pay Siemens Gamesa as part of that patent infringement uh, for the uh, Heliad X turbines. And that meant that GE was going to pay about $60,000 per megawatt for each of the turbines at the uh, 1.1 gigawatt ocean wind project off the coast of New Jersey, which is a lot of cash. But for this, just for this ocean wind one at 1.1 gigawatts at that rate, that's $66 million. I mean, what a what a wicked shot in the arm for Siemens on their balance sheet. 66 million bucks for having a court case. Well, you know, if, if Siemens, now that Siemens owns uh, the majority stake in all of uh, Siemens Gamesa, uh, maybe the higher ups at Siemens say, hey, talk to the higher ups at GE and obviously because GE is going to split here in the next couple of months and said, Hey, look, <laughs> we cannot help each other by suing one another in all these courts. We're just making lawyers rich and we just need to come to a peaceful agreement and move on. And that's what appeared to have happened. Cooler heads prevailed and we're going to move on. 
and everything's going to be okay with the world. We can compete as much as we want to, but we they're spending too much time in courts and courtrooms and paying lawyers, I think. And somebody decided to call an end to it and good. Yeah, exactly. But so there will there be a remodel to the Haley IDX platform? There are already, well, this is the, this is the thing. I think that there was one last time I looked, they were already trying to redesign that whole uh, fitting. But now that GE's say we're going to go, they're going to go to an 18 megawatt machine. I think that all goes away. If if GE's moving to an 18 megawatt and the Haleyad is just the platform, it's going to be, instead of being a 12 megawatt, 15 megawatt machine, it's just going to move to 18. You're going to just redesign all that anyway. So it kind of becomes a moot point. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So the U.S. Department of Energy released its offshore wind energy strategy uh, document a couple of days ago now. And that strategy aims to set uh, the nation on a pathway to 110 gigawatts or more by 2050. Yikes. <laughs> That's a lot of power. Another 80 between 2030 and 2050? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to 31st, then we can figure out the rest. Uh, the strategy categorizes DEOE's offshore wind efforts into four pillars, Joel. There's four. The Near Offshore Wind Initiative, uh, the Ford program, the Connect initiative, and the Transform initiative. So let me kind of step through them <laughs> as I was trying to do the other day. The Near Offshore Wind Initiative, which is the now part of this, it will lower costs from $73 per megawatt hour to $51 per megawatt hour by 2030, uh, develop a domestic supply chain, and inform sustainable just deployment of fixed bottom offshore wind. That's the NAUP initiative. The Ford initiative is to achieve the floating offshore wind shock goal of reducing costs by over 70% to 45 megawatt uh, $45 per megawatt hour by 2035, establish U.S. leadership in floating offshore wind design and manufacturing and inform sustainable, just deployment of floating offshore wind. Uh, the Connect program is to enable, enable reliable and resilient transmission solutions for large-scale offshore wind deployment. And the Transform effort is expand offshore wind cogeneration technologies for widespread electrification and decarbonization. <laughs> so I, when I read that, like, that's a mouthful uh, of, of different initiatives. That's a lot of fluffy words, yeah. Yeah, right? And to say you're going to reduce floating wind by cost by 70% is, is, a, is a goal. It isn't a system to get there. And I wanted to, to take one of them and break them apart. So I'm gonna, I, I looked at the Near Offshore Wind Initiative. That's a little closer to reality you know, in the States and to see how they're going to go from $73 per megawatt hour to $51 by 2030. Well, there are three main pieces to this, Joel. So hang on to your seat. Uh, 
First, optimizing the design of wind turbines and wind plant layouts through enhanced understanding of the short and long-term U.S. offshore wind resource and meteorological ocean and geophysical characteristics. This optimization would reduce costs to higher energy production, longer wind turbine system lifetimes, and lower development expenses and material use. That's step one. <laughs> Two, upscaling the wind turbines through systems engineering and testing, validate, validating and demonstrating the many innovations that will enable larger, more powerful turbines. Uh, for example, superconducting generators, active turbine controls, uh, while exploring the need for costs and benefits of and pathways to standardizing turbine sizes. And bullet point three, developing installation operations and maintenance strategies that reduce complexity and labor at sea while mitigating adverse impacts on the ocean environment. For example, remote maintenance, noise mitigation measures during installations, etc. Okay, <laughs> so those three bullet points are going to lower uh, fixed bottom near shore wind turbine cost from $73 a megawatt to $51 a megawatt hour. I'm at a loss. I don't get it. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> Yeah. Number one, the, basically everything you said there, optimizing design of wind plant layouts, enhanced understanding of short and long, yada, yada. That's all standard stuff that you have to do to install an offshore fixed bottom wind farm anyway. Exactly. Like understanding geophysical characteristics, the wind resource, met, met ocean data, like that's just standard stuff. If you're going to develop a wind farm whatsoever, you have to do all those things. So that that one can be kind of I don't know how you're going to reduce costs. That's going to be standard cut. Now, if you say we're going to, I don't know if it, it, instead of having a manned vessel out there, you're going to use an AUV to do geophysical exploration, and you can do it cheaper. That's something, right? But I don't. That, that's that's already kind of happening in the industry right now is r remote vehicles. So that's that's not something new that an innovation project needs to be done. There's I can name off the cuff half a dozen companies already doing it. Um, upscaling of wind turbines through systems engineering and testing, validating, demonstrating innovations, yada, yada, yada. That's, again, ongoing within the industry. We just heard GE go from 15 to 18 megawatts, right? Um, so while that's, while that's great, a great thing to talk about uh, on the Congress floor or wherever this is being talked about, these things are realities within the industry already. Um, superconducting generators and things now, that's we did have read something about a company in Michigan working with some non rare earth conductors and some things like that. Um, so maybe this will enable some innovation funding for for groups like that. That'd be great. Uh, but again, I don't understand some of the pathways to standardizing turbine sizes. Like, what's the point of that? How does that reduce cost? Besides, if you now if you reduce the or if you slow down in innovation cycles and you stick with one turbine model for a while, then you can your supply chain can catch up and things, and that's great. But that goes against everything that the U.S. economy is known for, i.e., capitalism and market adjustment. So you're not going to tell Siemens Gamesa unless you like say, oh, Siemens, you stay at that 15 megawatt machine for a while. We'll pay you 500 million a year. Or I don't know. I don't know how you expect to do that. That one seems like hot words to me, too. This is this is a series of goals. Yeah. So the third point, developing installation operations, maintenance strategies, reduce complexity and labor at sea. Fantastic. 
words, again, um, there's a couple groups out there creating different kinds of vessels and new vessels for installation as the Jones Act requires. Um, other than, and, and they're, you know, of course you want to put the most innovative new ideas onto those vessels. So that's happening right now. Uh, remote maintenance, uh, drones from shore, drones from an AUV. So a drone launching from an autonomous robotic, robotic boat. Again, those things are happening right now. Um, so engaging with those companies, maybe the federal government engaging with those companies and giving them some money to further their research and their development programs. Great. Uh, but this doesn't really point out a process to, to get that done or how much money's there or what they're just saying this, basically they're saying all of these things would be nice and we're going to cut the cost of near offshore wind by 30% by doing all of them. I don't know who's doing the accounting here. Right. There's, there is no system in place to, to do to accomplish any of these things, everything they have talked about at the DOE level are goals, and then they try to. If you read this document, and it's huge, so if you start reading down into, they start listing the different federal organizations that can participate in different aspects of this. All that's fine, but who's going to do it? Who's going to do the heavy lifting? You're talking about significant changes in wind turbine design, uh, the substation design, to drop prices down by a third. That's not realizable. As an engineer, I'm telling you, that's not going to happen. Now, the the PPAs that, for example, Commonwealth Wind had negotiated with the state of Massachusetts were about $74 a megawatt hour. And Commonwealth Wind is stepping away from those because they said that PPAs are too low. To, to say then you're going to go from 74 to 51, there, no one's going to sign up to that. There is, there's not going to be a single operator owner that's going to say sign up to $51 a megawatt hour for offshore wind. Not in today's world, not even in 2030. They're, they're not likely to do that. Uh, so I, I don't see where the breakthrough technology is because that's what we're talking about, breakthrough technology. Where is the breakthrough technology? And you think that's going to be developed by the federal government? Uh, that That is not a realizable thing. Yeah, it's not. It, it, they have not demonstrated themselves the ability to do that. If they want to cut loose some federal funding to say, hey, we're going to create this, hey, GE, um, I want to hear your ideas for some great new ways to reduce the, the cost of running these wind turbines. And GE comes forward and says, we have some, but we just need $100 million of money to get it done. All right, let's talk. But it, unless that is happening, GE's not going to participate in this. Siemens Gamesa, why would Siemens Gamesa participate in this? Why would Vestas participate in this effort? They have no incentive to do such. Now, they may, they may talk about it and say, well, we're, we're supportive of these goals, which I'm sure that they are. But when the rubber hits the road here, it is not in their best financial interest for these things to happen. And they're the ones that, are, that we need to make it happen. They're already screaming about non-profitability, like you're going to take 30% of the revenue away from them and you think they're going to be happy about it like i don't like i said like there's some operations and maintenance stuff here that's that's great they're great ideas and and they can help um you know that my mind isn't going to all the robotic technologies and remote uh, vessels and the ability to fly a drone from shore and all these different things for inspections and so there's some ways to optimize some some o and m costs but to to optimize actual development um and installation i don't think you're going to cut down on the capex to install these things that easily there's just it's just too much yeah the same the same sort of process existed for their their push for floating offshore 
where they're talking about even greater reductions in cost. I don't see that one happening either. And we didn't even really have a baseline in it. If we had a couple hundred or a couple thousand wind turbines out in the water right now, then we could really get a baseline to understand where those costs could be reduced. But because we have seven wind turbines in the water, there's just no way to even get a baseline on that. So floating to me is the one spot that there's an opportunity. And now why I say that is because the supply chain, the engineering, the design isn't quite completed. So, and what I'm trying to, to, to get at is, is like right now with floating, we are in the 1930s on large tractors, right? Tra tractors have been around for 10, 20 years, but we have the ability to kind of, kind of have like, we, we know a little bit about how the design could work and may work and some borrowed parts from some other things like with wagon wheels and a little bit of this and cars have been around for a little while a car the cars or whatever being fl fixed floating offshore in my mind but or fixed offshore i'm sorry in my mind but i'm thinking now okay floating there isn't a country right now or an area of the world that is powerhouse for floating wind yet right so the capability is still there for us to be able to inject some cash and develop that as our own to have you know bald eagle <laughs> floating wind and, and and the u.s take the lead on it like that's that's the one that's possible because you know there's some offshore wind being there, there's of course like high wind tampon and some other things in uh you know off the coast of scotland and there's some norwegian initiatives and there's initiatives in france like there's things going on but they're not installed at scale yet so all of the all of the offshore wind farms are made by three you know, besides some Ming Yang, some Chinese stuff, right? Some 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 of the things in the APAC region, they're they're made by specific um, manufacturers, and we know like okay, when Orsted was really cruising and selling a lot, like they have Orsted has a pile of three point megawatt eight megawatt seam or uh, Siemens machines installed. Like we know the certain things that are there now. When you go to floating, it's not quite there yet, and we know that we'll probably adopt some technology from these OEMs, but like the the specific supply chain insulation engineering is not completed yet. There is not a front leader in it. So that's the one spot I see a possible opportunity for the U.S. to to run with. Um, but we it, it, it's a quit first to market thing here, right? We've got to make it happen now. That can't be the thing that we wait till 2035 for because it won't happen. I mean, and, and to put it in perspective, Time goes quick, right? I keep thinking 2030, yeah, 10 years away. No, it's six and a half years away. Like six and a half years is not much time in the in the industrial world to develop something. Right. We've been we've been working on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter since 2004 or something like that. <laughs> Longer than that, I think. Yeah. The 90s. Yeah. So like in the industrial world, six and a half years is not much time. OK, so if there, let's just say that floating may be the place where you could lower material cost down. Let's just say that. I think that's probably doable. The only place to really grab some cost reduction is to use a non-US, non-European wind turbine. At, at that point, you're talking about using wind turbines that are developed in China. And I know uh, there's been some discussion in Europe about that. Like if you're really serious about putting the amount of wind energy in the ground and, and offshore, the only way to do that at the moment is to bring in uh, manufacturers from China to go do that. You think that you think the United States administration is going to do open the door to that to get to these these goal numbers? No, nope. and I'll tell you why. I mean, I think it's pretty clear, right? But I mean, 
earlier in the conversation, you and I were, ha- we were just kind of talking through some articles and looking at some stuff. And I said, what is, you know, it was like regulatory approval by FERC. FERC is Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Yeah. And so there's already been things that have stopped uh, clean energy development within the U.S., specifically in Texas, that was owned by Chinese companies. Because we want to have our energy security by an energy um, system that we maintain, we have control of, the United States government and FERC specifically will not allow Chinese turbines on the grid. I just don't think so. Because if they can be remotely controlled at any time, if there was an issue politically or as anything, it's just boom, shut the power off. It's a click of a button. That's as simple as it gets. So I just don't think that... I don't think that you'll get Chinese wind turbines onto the public grid. Now, if it's a private grid or some distributed power or something, maybe. Within the last two weeks, the Department of Energy was uh, put in front of a Senate committee and they were crushed. The representative from the DOE was crushed in regards to knowing how much of the existing United States grid has Chinese components in it and where those components would be. And the DOE didn't have any answer for that. And it got combative. And it wasn't a good look on either side, in my opinion, but it got combative. And I think you may be right, Joel, that the uh, legislature is not happy with having um, large-scale Chinese components in the U.S. grid. Obviously, offshore would be a real real problem, pain point, potentially. So it probably won't happen. But if they're talking about trying to meet these one-third reduction in uh, megawatt hour costs. That is the only way it's going to happen today. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Well, Joel, there's actually two separate efforts uh, by large operators, RWE and BP, uh, where they're calling for innovations in offshore wind. And both the BP and RWE requests are, are basically the same. So I'll use the RWE one as the example here, knowing that BP has essentially the same program. Uh, so RWE is uh, seeking new concepts that would contribute to a net positive effect on biodiversity at the company's new offshore wind farm sites uh, in the, for circularity, as they're calling it. I always find that word odd. Uh, RDB welcomes innovative solutions to contribute to the uh, increasing circularity of the, of the wind turbine life cycle, which is what they're talking about, and minimizing waste during the entire lifetime of the offshore wind farms. And if they're looking in terms of system integration, which is a subject point for the DOE and where RWE is is, uh, looking for some new ideas uh, that enhance the flexibility or of the wind farm or and minimize curtailment off times. Obviously, every wind farm operator is looking for that. 
the winners get a chance to explore their innovation on an offshore wind farm with RWE's development team, which would be kind of cool. So if you have a, a good idea there, you'd be working with the experts at RWE. Uh, and they get involved with a technical innovations program at RWE if they were uh, chosen, which uh, grants access to the experts to help them further develop and test and scale their proposed solution, which is great. Uh, the submittals have to be made by the middle of April. So they get about two weeks away uh, from the day we're recording and the winners will be revealed sometime late this fall. So you're looking at operators, not wind turbine designers, but operators, BP and RWE, that are wanting to reduce the amount of waste that's, that's contributed uh, during the, in the build and during the operations. Also try to help the fish and the, the wildlife that are around those turbines. But they're also trying to keep the uptime and expand it and produce more power. And I think that's probably where they're going to get the most feedback on is these are things that here's some ideas to keep the wind turbines turning with less cost. It's basically anything that would, anything that help, helps with an ESG goal or keeps the turbines running, right? So I think uh, there's, there's, prob there's probably a lot of players out there, a lot of people out there with smaller companies or d development companies, uh, smaller engineering firms that have a little tool or some, you know, a CMS system or something to help with lightning such as yourselves that may, this may be an open and an opportunity to get in with RWE, to talk to them, to, to, to get to be able to be a part of or, or get involved with their technical uh, innovation team, which would be, is great exposure for anybody. Um, so I think you look to these, RWE is one of those companies, when you go to any conference, you see them sitting up on panels, right? There's always someone from RWE up on a panel. There's someone a lot of times from BP on a panel, from Orsted on a panel, Nextair on a panel. So these are the thought leaders you want to see in the market and that they're putting this out there. Great, because what happens to them and what they learn from this, I hope they share it with the rest of the world. Hopefully they share it with the smaller developers to show how we can, because um, everything here is about being better with the environment, but that's why we're do that's why we're all in clean energy, uh, and then also lowering the cost of energy, the levelized cost of energy, right? So whatever these big big players that have some of the budgets to be able to do these things are, um, fantastic. So get some people in there, learn some things, and share the information with the rest of the world. Hopefully, at the next one of the next conferences or in a year or two, we hear about what came out of this program, uh, and it can help the rest of the uh, operators out there. Two companies came to mind immediately: Arc Vera in terms of wakes and predicting what the wake turbulence is going to be and Windesco because they have that big campaign down at the Milford site down in Utah, which is very successful. And, it, and it's now a large scale effort to uh, maximize the output of the farm, not just individual turbines. I think those two companies are really set up right now to take advantage of these initiatives because obviously wakes are going to be a problem. Trying to maximize the output of a farm is, is already a problem as we, as we've predicted. And those two companies have solutions on deck. And if BP or RWE opened up a, a site, like to Windesco, for example, say, all right, here's an existing site. We want to try your technology on this wind farm out in Scotland or wherever it may be. Let's let's give let's go run this out and see if we can get three, four, five percent improvement in AEP. That would make tremendous sense. That would that would pay for itself multiple times over. Hands down. Right. And that, I think that's the way these projects will hopefully go is you'll see companies like those take another step forward and really help reduce the cost of, of offshore wind because they can add three, four, five percent. 
something that that to, to be sure to touch on here as well is if you're you know one of our normal listeners in the U.S. and whatnot, you're not used to offshore wind usually, right? If you're if you're over here, you haven't really dealt with offshore wind yet. Off, offshore wind is so difficult to get a company to allow you to test out an idea on their turbines simply because it's so expensive for them, right? It's it's it costs dollars and dollars thousands of dollars a day for the sov it costs most of those turbines are eight ten if it's new turb new wind farms that rw is talking about 12 14 megawatt machines shutting that thing down for an hour costs 10 times what it costs to shut down an onshore turbine right so the shutdown time the logistics time the planning the effort that goes into trialing stuff on these offshore wind farms is very 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 difficult there's been a ton of uh, drone companies that have tried to go offshore and it's so hard to get the vessel time to test your solution and a lot of them then go out and test it and the IMUs fail because the magnetometers and the big metal boats and all this different stuff that, that kind of stuff happens offshore but it's, it's, so it's not to be missed here for people that are looking for um, testing things offshore if you're looking to test things offshore you probably already know this but if you don't Offshore wind to test things and to get access to a wind farm is very, very difficult simply because of the cost to the operator. Well, some big news out of Siemens Gamesa because they announced the signing of a firm order with Scottish Power Renewables to supply 95 units of the flagship SG14-236 DD wind turbine to the East Anglia 3 wind power project in the North Sea. Uh with a which has a total capacity of 1.4 gigawatts. Uh, that's a huge project. Roughly, Joel, that's about one and a half billion dollars of an order. Nice, that's a nice order for Siemens Gamesa. And it also includes a service contract, uh, initially for an eight year period. And I think then after that, they're going to figure it out. Uh, but it's a, a really uh, nice step for Siemens Gamesa and a, a really big order. East Anglia 3 is a second of four projects planned with uh, Scottish Power Renewables in their 2.9 gigawatt total East Anglia hub a development in the North Sea. Uh, the anticipated lifetime of the project will be 25 years, uh, in which is going to kick off in 2026 and is be part of the UK's 2050 net zero target. And in addition to that, uh, that same 14236DD model, they've sold a number of those up in Denmark and in Poland, about another 2.8 gigawatts of those machines. So they're having some really nice orders with that 14 megawatt machine. That's a good sign for Siemens Gamesa right now to get an order of that size. That that's helps sustain them, right? That, that, you need those orders once in a while, those sort of big gigawatt orders to keep the production line going. Well, our, our old friend Dan Blewett would say you can win games playing small ball, but when you hit the home runs, man, does it feel good. You know, I, I had a couple of colleagues that act actually went to the test center there in Denmark, and this thing, the report back is, it's a monster. It's, it is, the first time you stand under a wind turbine, when you stand under like a 1.5 or something, if you've never, if you've never done it, if you're new to listening to the wind or you're a back office person that's never been to the field, uh, you stand under a 1.5 megawatt machine and it's just like, wow, that thing is huge. And then you stand under like a four megawatt machine and you're like, that 1.5 was tiny. And now you're going to go stand under a 14. I mean, it, it's it's scary how big these things are. Well, and it's it's going to be their baseline for at least a little while. While GE is going to move to 18 megawatts, Investus is going to hold at 15 megawatts, it sounds like. 
Uh, Siemens Gamesa has traction at 14 megawatts, will probably stay there quite a while. Obviously, if they can get it to 15 or 16, they will. But you need to sell some units, and they have. And you're right, Joel. You, you, your whole company picks up when these orders come in. If you sell five turbines, yeah, it's a good day, right? But when you sell 95 of these things, everybody in that factory should be cheering, and rightly so. So congratulations to Siemens Gamesa. That's a really nice order. Uh, over in Sweden, Joel, there's been uh, recent research saying that the vast majority of wind farm projects are rejected. And they've looked, this research has looked from 2020 through 2022, where <laughs> I hate to even say these numbers because they're so high. Uh, a, total of 80 wind a total of 80 wind farm projects were submitted between 2020 and 2022 and 54 rejected. While uh, 1,021 of the 1,400 applications to install turbines were declined. Wow. Uh, in some of the southern regions, 78% of the applications were rejected. Uh, and compared to up north, 50% of the uh, applications were rejected. So southern Sweden is rejecting wind turbines at a higher rate than northern Sweden. Uh, municipalities in Sweden can stop wind farms at three different stages after the application is submitted in the formal consultation period and then in early talks before consultation. So there's multiple stopping points. Now it looks like the municipalities are hitting those stopping points and telling the, telling potential operators or bidders to, to stop, uh, which is unique because Sweden has the capability of being really electrified. And that is one of the Things we noticed when we were, we were just in Sweden, uh, the train we were on, which took us from Norway all the way to the to the wind winter wind conference, that was electrified. That whole train in the middle of uh, the rural Sweden, rough territory, the frozen tundra. Yeah, it was electrified. Whereas on the Norway side, it was a diesel locomotive. Uh, so Sweden clearly has made an effort to electrify itself, at least in part. And uh, let me balance that off, though. Norway, weirdly enough, has one of the highest uh, use of electric vehicles that when we got to Sweden, we we're saying, wow, everything's electrified. Yeah, but in Norway, there's a lot more electric cars than there is in Sweden. So a lot more gas powered vehicles, internal combustion engines in Sweden than there is in Norway. So there, there's a little bit of a dichotomy going on. Uh, but it's still remarkable that the re, these projects in Sweden are being rejected at such a high rate. I don't think the rate in the United States is nearly that high. I don't think it's anywhere near 50% in the United States. It may be. Uh, we can actually dig into that. But is there a big pushback about wind in Sweden? And if so, why? Is, is it just because of the rural nature and they love the pristine um, mountain views that they have? Is, is that what it is? I think that's part of it. The other side of it being, um, you know, the southern part of the country is, of course, where there's more population. You have Stockholm there and some other uh, larger cities, Malmo and whatnot, Gothenburg. So uh, you have more larger cities there. And, of course, you want to put as uh, power generation facilities as close to the city as you can. So you don't have to have transmission lines going everywhere. Um, but then it, 
You know, if you know this, this is the same with Norwegians though too. Norwegians, Swedes, Finns, all the above, they, they love the outdoors. They like to go camping, like to go skiing, like to go do some fishing. Do, do the, so they don't want their pristine, and it's part of what you say is like the, the populace, and they don't want their pristine kind of views ruined. And a lot of the, in the southern part of the country, if you ever, ever looked at a map of Sweden, there's a lot of nice little lakes. And so, you know, some glacial lakes and some larger ones, um, some beautiful little towns. Um, so I think part of it is just uh, maintaining what Sweden has naturally been and that little bit of pushback to uh, uh, changing over to a more electrified society or a green, green society, I would say. But it goes against my, what my brain would naturally think of, of, the, of the country. Which is odd. And before anybody sends me any hate mail, because I, I know that's coming. <laughs> I, I am part Swede here, right? So my great grandfather came over from Sweden back in the early 1900s. So I get it. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I understand generically what's happening there. But does that just mean there's going to be a push for more offshore wind? Is, is that the drive? They're saying, hey, not onshore, at least not in some specific locations. Is offshore then the window of opportunity? If, uh, for wind to be used in Sweden and Norway for that matter. Yeah, I think, I mean, Norway, of course, they have the deep continental shelf off the West Coast. So they're looking at floating wind more over there. Uh, I do believe that Sweden has some plans for the for some, some wind in the Baltic Sea. But if you look, um, you know, off the southern tip of Sweden or southwestern side around Denmark and Germany, there is tons of offshore wind stacked all over in there, right? So they have the resource they have the resource there. They can use it if they if they decide to. Um, I'd like to ask some of my my Danish colleagues uh, what their thoughts are on why Sweden pushes back on this. Um, but I don't know. We might get some some calmer reunion <laughs> battles going back in there between cousins cousins and friends and Swedes, Norways, Norwegians and Danes. So maybe maybe that's the answer. Maybe ultimately that's the answer. If if Sweden is going to push, and I think they are, and that's where Greta Thunberg is from too, right? She's from Sweden. It, it's just weird to see these two things play together. Maybe offshore wind is the answer. And we did fly from, uh, gosh, where were we? We were in Oslo, Norway. We we're flying to Copenhagen. And uh, when you're flying into Copenhagen, there's a number of wind turbines offshore there. They're everywhere. You go right over the top of them, yeah. That's a cool sight to see. It, it is. It's, it's remarkable. Everybody's taking pictures. At least the Americans were because you've never seen anything like that. We have seven wind turbines in the water. There are literally hundreds around there. It, it is a, a sight to see. Our wind farm of the week is Rattlesnake Creek Wind Farm in Nebraska. And it's located, in, if you know your geography, Joel, it's up in northeastern Nebraska, right across uh, the state line from Sioux City, Iowa. The site is owned by Enel Green Power, and it's one of the largest farms in Nebraska with uh, 318 megawatts being produced from its 101 Axiona 3.15 megawatt turbines uh, began operation at the end of 2018. And you uh, wouldn't have guessed this, but it is providing power to Facebook and Adobe as part of their uh, green energy investments. And the amount of money that went into that site locally uh, to get that whole site developed the, the was a little over $400 million. And $400 million in that part of Nebraska is a lot of money. Good for them. I'm sure it was a big driver to the local community. At least I hope that it was. I'm from Nebraska, but this place is pretty far north from where I am. Uh, but interest, that's an interesting amount of money 
uh, to go into a, a, a sort of a rural part of Nebraska. And the other part about this, <laughs> I'll say, is I haven't seen a rattlesnake in Nebraska because it tends to get really cold. So to, to call it Rattlesnake Creek Wind Farm, it's a little odd, but maybe there's an existing Rattle Creek, uh, Rattlesnake Creek there. I, I've, I've been a lot of places in Nebraska. I've never heard of a rattlesnake, never been around a rattlesnake. Uh, not to say that they don't exist there, but they tend to live a little further south where it's warmer. It sounds like one time one person saw one rattlesnake in that creek and that's how it got its name. Or, or it's a way to keep out, out other settlers. Yeah, there you go. Hey, there it is. Yeah, it's to keep out other settlers. Oh, there's rattlesnakes near that creek over there. <laughs> Man, well, might as well head to South Dakota. We're, we're okay over here. <laughs> yeah. So Rattlesnake Creek Wind Farm is our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Cool.